0: Well, good morning. Again. This is a 720
1: to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM.
0: As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM.
1: When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong.
0: Welcome to the Saturday Morning Show, our weekly get-together here on WGN Radio to talk about the planet's most basic industry, that's agriculture producing food for a growing population. I'm Orion, always good to be with you on Saturday, particularly when I can work in WGN West in Scottsdale, Arizona, Where right now the temperature is 49 degrees and it's not snowing. And uh, I'm beginning to uh, run into more folks from the Midwest and the Chicagoland area who are coming to Arizona for sunshine. And heat, but they're not finding much heat. It's been chilly here in the desert, too, cooler than normal. But with the rain over the winter here in the southwest, uh, we're beginning to get the beautiful colors of blossoms, flowers that are blooming for the uh, spring season coming up. And the baseball training season coming up here in Arizona. But uh, during the next uh, 45 minutes or so, we're going to talk agriculture. And as I mentioned earlier, talking to uh, Matt and Roger, a uh, lot of things that are not nice going on on the planet with earthquakes in Turkey. And of course, the uh, coronavirus that's originating in China and continuing to spread and rack up a toll. And I'll talk a little bit more about that because today is the start of one of the most important holiday seasons in China. That's the Lunar New Year. And the country has virtually shut down as the virus toll continues to climb and continues to spread. That's the one thing about how much easier it is to travel anywhere in the world today when you get a viral disease like the corona uh, disease the uh, situation can spread quickly and uh, it's now found in Australia and it's now found in several countries in the European Union. So uh, that's having an impact on the market, as you've heard this week, and it will continue to have an impact on the market. Death toll now is 41 in China, and Australia has reported its first four cases of coronavirus. So that is impacting markets, not only agriculture, but Wall Street. And as I mentioned earlier earlier, you know, for the past 18 to 24 months, just about every market story, I've led off with China. Well, China, of course, was the focus in the U.S.-China trade negotiations, but now China is the focus in what is a very serious situation that's developed on the planet. So, anyway, we'll get started because, as I mentioned We'll be talking what's going to happen to the value of farmland here in the United States in 2020. So stand by as we talk to the folks at Farmers National Company in Omaha about farmland prices after this here on the Saturday Morning Show. A few times a year, we like to check in for what I consider the best assessment of farmland value that we get throughout the year. Farmers National Company, based in Omaha, Nebraska, and with me on the line this morning is Randy to who is, golly, let me get that uh, title right: uh, Senior Vice President, Real Estate Operations. Is that correct, Randy? That's correct, Orion. Well, good to have you back here. And the thing that made it especially interesting was the headline on your assessment that came out a couple of weeks ago and the headline will 2020 be the year the land market tumbles so that'll be my first question what's your
2: answer to that <laughs> well land market or land values are so important to everybody in agriculture whether you're the farmer or a landowner because uh, it's uh important for the producer's balance sheet, their borrowing capacity, and their their livelihood. And it's important for the owner because it's an important asset that, that they own, and they're able to rent out. So the question has been, as we've watched the land market over the last number of years, since 2013, is with the economic conditions and the lower commodity prices uh, in agriculture, it's why haven't land values gone down more? And I think 2000. Uh, 20 is kind of that watershed year. Are we going to stay on the plateau or get better? Ultimately, I think there's actually enough support in the market and what we're seeing right now that it's going to pretty much stay on that plateau and may not tumble much further.
0: How much impact did the trade debates with China and the European Union and other of our customers, how much impact did that have on demand and sale prices for farmland here?
2: What that did, uh, of course, it hurt the, uh, you know, income of producers uh, for sure. Uh, but a lot of that was made up with the MFP payments. And if we hadn't had the MFP payments, I think we'd had a lot more pessimistic outlook on land values and the ag economy. Those pumped a lot of cash in uh, to Farmers, producers' hands, and that kept that buying interest and demand uh, pretty steady, um, although very cautious on uh, when buying farmland. So that had a big impact. Uh, if we again wouldn't have those payments; it'd been a different picture.
0: So, who is doing the selling these days, and who is doing the buying?
2: sellers continue to be mainly the estates uh, trusts uh, families who have recently inherited the farmland uh, and maybe some families that have owned that land for a while and are deciding that for whatever reason they want to divide up the uh, estate finally and and they come about to selling there is some selling from uh, farmers and ranchers who are under some financial stress and they're it helps them, you know, uh, with their balance sheet or cash flow. Most of those sales happen quietly, where they might find an investor locally or uh, somewhere that, you know, they can sell to and then continue to operate that farm. Uh, buyers uh, still, predominantly, the larger percentage are local farmers who want to expand. They've got. Uh, borrowing capacity or cash saved, that they can make that purchase uh, and expand their operation. Individual investors and investment funds are stepping in a little bit more. I've seen uh, some uptick in the interest, but again, they're uh, cautious in what they buy and, and it has to be within their investment parameters.
0: We did see increased activity a few years ago for recreational land. City folks who wanted a place to go and hunt, is that still continuing?
2: I think that's fairly uh, steady also. Uh, Nothing wild about that going on. But if you're in the right areas, regions close to the cities has that uh, recreational type land, that demand is is definitely there, but it's nothing uh, going wild on it.
0: And then the type of sales. Are we doing more uh, auctions than we are private treaty sales? What's the uh, lineup there?
2: That'll depend on the region. Uh, Area like Iowa, uh, the public outcry auction still is a predominant way of selling farmland. Uh, It's very well accepted. It works very well. Eastern Corn Belt, we've seen uh, fewer of those auctions and more or an increase in the private treaty listing even though land values for good quality land are remaining fairly steady that demand that buyers are more cautious so we're going to the away from the auctions a little bit you get in the northern regions northern plains the bid sales are a little more prevalent Again, auctions are uh, just uh, not as, public auctions are not as prevalent as some places. So it'll vary. Uh, in the plains, you get a combination, a little bit of everything.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Farmers National Company, because you've been around for a long time. I've been quoting the things that you've been saying for a long time. A little background on where you operate in the country and how active you are in managing and selling farmland.
2: You bet. Um, we uh, manage and sell Uh, Farms and ranches in 28, 29 states um, actually were licensed in 30 states from the Pacific Northwest to uh, state of New York um, and the uh, southeastern United States to handle uh, some uh, land sales, real estate sales, and so forth. We manage uh, about 2 million acres of uh, land and timberland and uh, worth about $9.2 billion so have quite a reach uh, mainly through the grain belt ohio to the colorado and canada down through texas well, I
0: notice in your press release with the headline that I quoted earlier that uh, you divide up the report into uh, Iowa and Wisconsin and then another area, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Missouri, and Arkansas. Can you give me an idea of the direction of land values in those areas?
2: Sure. I, in Iowa, uh, for instance, uh, some of Auctions this fall and this early winter have had uh, some good prices. You know, if it's a good quality, good tillable, efficient to farm, uh, highly productive, that land is in demand. If it's lower quality, uh, the average quality yields aren't as good, harder to farm. Uh, Those continue to soften a little bit, not as much demand, a little harder to sell for sure. Wisconsin, with the last number of years here that the dairy industry has gone through, has seen that consolidation uh, continue. You've seen uh, dairy producers retire uh, or, for financial reasons, get out. So, uh, even though good cropland is in uh, will, will sell, it gets a little tougher because you have the operations with facilities and so forth. So, that's a little tougher market. Eastern Corn Belt. Um, Definitely uh, good-value cropland, holds its own, uh, but there's you know less for sale, which in a lot of regions that really helps support the price because there's just not quite as much for sale uh, as there was a few years ago.
0: So looking forward, where do you see the market going from the standpoint of ownership and rental? What's going to happen to mm-hmm. cash rents? <laughs>
2: What we're seeing in our company as we uh, negotiate and renew cash rent leases on uh, behalf of our landowner clients, we're seeing those pretty steady. Uh, Actually, in some areas where there's uh, less hesitance to renew uh, by the the, uh, farmer uh, from the same terms they had last year or the year before. Um, I think, again, in a lot of places, yields were better than had in been anticipated. And grain price prospects, uh, they're a little more optimistic on those with the trade issues, with crop sizes being down some and, you know, all those issues going on through. So I think there's a little optimism there, at least to uh, renew those leases at the same rates that they have been. Now, in some areas, the very northern plains of North Dakota, there's a little more challenge to that with the harvest and Uh, delay and, uh, you know, loss of harvest and loss of crop that they had in that area. But, um, you know, looking forward, um, you know, I think there's always that hope uh, that next year will be better when you're in agriculture. I've lived that all my life, and you always look to the next year. Final uh, subject,
0: relationship between absentee landowners and their tenant farmers. Do you get involved in a lot of debates in that area, or do they get along pretty well?
2: They, they do. Um, you know, when I farmed back in Illinois for many years, we had, uh, you know, landowners that my father worked with and uh, continued to work with as, as long as I farmed, and so many of those relationships between farmers and that, as a tenant, landowners as landlord go back, you know, three generations at least and uh, those work uh, pretty well as long as everybody's honest they share information and work at it as a business uh, between the the two parties Uh, we as a company um, you know we get involved as kind of that third party to help uh, on behalf of the landowner to know what's going on in that land rental market the land sale market commodity prices, uh, ag technology, and uh, we work very well with the uh, tenants uh, because we understand what they're going through, and we try and come to a fair and equitable arrangement when it comes to leases each year.
0: And what would be the most important ingredient in that relationship, being honest and staying in close contact?
2: Absolutely. As we know about anything, it's having good communication. You know, if there's a problem with the crop season or something, or there needs to be a repair on the farm, everybody needs to communicate and then size it up on a business, business uh, business-like matter. And uh, having that uh, being, you know, fair and honest about everything that comes up makes it all work well. And
0: as you said earlier in the interview, you have to be an optimist if you're going to be involved in agriculture, whether it's absentee ownership or tenant farming. That You really have to be an optimist, don't you?
2: Yes, you do. And, uh, you know, each year when spring comes, uh, it always quickens the heart of the farmer and the landowners and us as managers because uh, we like to get out there and, and produce a crop.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time. We look forward to staying in touch with you throughout the year. Our visit with Randy Dick who is the Senior Vice President of Real Estate Operations, Farmers National Company, based in Omaha, Nebraska. We're coming up to 5.30 here on the Saturday morning show. the halfway, Mark, but we have a lot more to talk about. Brian Split will be joining Max to talk about markets and uh, Despite all that's going on in the world that could and does impact markets, uh, we did have uh, some difficult times and some, well, fairly good times in the marketplace this week. Once the uh, trade situation is uh, in the back seat and not on the front, storyline for agriculture so that is some help but there's still too much going on that impacts the markets and we'll be talking about that but here on uh, this saturday morning that's a wintry morning in the good area of the midwest we're at the halfway mark of the saturday morning show on 720 wgn radio chicago i want to talk about a story that caught my eye this past week. It occurred in Iowa with the headline, Group Releases National Ban Factory Farm Petition with 7,500 Signatures to Presidential Candidates. It demanded a factory farm moratorium and support for Senator Cory Booker's Farm System Reform Act. According to the press release, the petition was signed by voters and residents from all over the country. One spokesperson said, any political agricultural platform that does not adequately address the worsening factory farm crisis we are facing across the country is half-baked and majority flawed. It's time to take a zero-tolerance approach when it comes to factory farming." There is no count of how many signers of the petition were farmers. But I would be interested to know your definition of a factory farm versus a family farm and how you feel about the petition to ban factory farms. Now, I know there are pro and con feelings on the issue in rural America. Some people saying it's destroying rural towns and family farms – Others saying it would curtail our food production system and ability to produce food for a growing world population. Then others say it goes against our free enterprise system and would lead to socialism and place more regulations on American food producers. Now, I understand both sides of the issue, but my question is how do you define a factory farm or a family farm? And who makes the legal definition? I certainly wouldn't want that placed in the hands of Congress. I do know that my childhood Wisconsin dairy farm, 200 acres, 90 tillable, 110 woods and rolling hills, and 30 milk cows would not survive in today's economy. My folks sold that farm in 1964 because of age, and they didn't have the money to increase the size of the farm or buy the necessary new equipment. So let me hear from you with your thoughts on this petition. That's Orion at agbizweek.com. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. And this is a presentation of the next Star Media Group at uh, 24 minutes now before six o'clock here on the Saturday morning show, and uh, before we get to uh, our Max Armstrong visit with Brian Split to talk about markets, a couple of notes on a deadline coming up on January 31st. That's next Friday, and uh, be aware that the uh, Department of Agriculture. Risk Management Agency is reminding producers that the crop insurance premiums for the 2019 crop year are due on January 31st. And under the change uh, in policies that do not have the preseason uh, paid by January 31st, there will be an interest addition beginning February 1st. So, And there's a couple of other items, too, that should be checked with the uh, Farm Service Agency office and with your crop insurance salesman uh, because it does involve the crop insurance premiums that are due. So make note of that. Max Armstrong spent uh, a good part of the past week at the Farm Bureau Convention in Austin, Texas, along with a lot of other people from all over the country. And uh, again, congratulations to the Illinois Farm Bureau for its participation and influence in the discussions on policy at the Farm Bureau Convention. And they also honored some county farm bureaus in our area. Three county farm bureaus exhibited their winning county activities of excellence during a showcase at the convention, and they were among 24 selected from 100 entries. Cook County members showcased their food pantry challenge, while DuPage members shared their Consumer Gateway to Ag program with those who attended the convention. And Pike Scott County members exhibited their lilacs, land, and long-necked chicken program. The Cook County winning program enabled farm bureau leaders to engage with more than 118,000 urban consumers in conversations about modern farming and healthy, nutritious food that local farmers grow while partnering with financially and financially supporting. 14 nonprofit food pantries. During the course of four months and through severe Facebook polls, 14,000 consumers voted for their favorite food pantry and as a result, the Farm Bureau donated $3,500 to 14 local food pantries while expanding consumers' knowledge of agriculture and local food programs and pantries. The program being expanded this year so congratulations to the cook county farm bureau on that activity at the farm bureau convention the one sad part of the convention was the fact that uh, the farm bureau members were mourning the passing of the uh, wife of the president of the american farm bureau federation zippy duval That uh, happened as the convention got underway and it pretty much kept the national president, Zippy, away from the Farm Bureau Convention. Well, we'll talk markets when we come back with Max Armstrong and
1: his guest here on the Saturday morning show. Brian Split is in the chair with us this weekend from AgMarket.net. Welcome back, sir. Thank you for having me, Max. Well, we're still looking at uh, a little bit of volatility in the market. We have been in the recent days. The finalization of phase one. I say finalization. The uh, announcement, the signing with a lot of details yet hanging out there, fulfillment hanging out there, was greeted by the market uh, to the surprise of some who farm. In a negative fashion, was it simply, a, looking back at that, was it simply a, a matter of buy the rumor and sell the fact? Or was it just disappointment there wasn't more detail?
3: I think there's a, a couple nuances to that, Max. Uh, there's a, The easy answer is the buy the rumor, sell the fact. And I, I do think that there's... An element of that and the way the market handled things. We did rally into the announcement, um, so it's not like the market uh, was at a low level and then sold off further. We did rally considerably from the December lows in soybean futures coming into this, but uh, we also have a crop in Brazil that is uh, getting bigger as we speak. Um, last estimates that I've been privy to are 123 to 126 million tons of production in Brazil. Uh, for uh, reference, our largest U.S. soybean crop is about 120 million tons. So um, we've got a large crop that's going to be online down there. And uh, I think, you know, there's been some talk from the Chinese side saying, you know, we're not going to increase our import quotas to meet uh, a dollar amount in value. So uh, I think that kind of reinforces the idea that they will buy what they need to buy when it makes economical sense.
1: That had a little bit of a chilling effect, I guess, on the enthusiasm, the fact that they would buy for their needs and uh, not more than that.
3: Right. And so we know that right now uh, we've had the global impact from African swine fever. And so the question then becomes uh, when will their hog herd uh, be back online to the capacity that it was previously. How long does that take? And it's going to be really hard to justify uh, China being aggressive with soybean purchases uh, to feed their their hog herd unless they have a separate idea of uh, attempting to really build their, their state reserves, and that's yet to be seen.
1: And the hopes that they would be buying a significant amount of corn from us were uh, dashed a little bit by the cancellation of their... Uh... Ambitious ethanol plants,
3: correct? Well, right. So some of that volatility that we had last week uh was centered around the buy the rumor sell the fact uh and and that kind of found its way into the corn market, but then we had rumors the very next day that there was some business done out of the PNW and 2 to 4 cargoes of corn was purchased by china uh... we we've yet to see any confirmation that it was china and i've also read that it it actually penciled out for south korea or japan to purchase corn so uh... somebody did purchase some corn out of the pnw and we can't deny that uh... but uh... as far as the ethanol hopes go you know, China's one of those things, I don't really trust what they say. Uh, did, did they really nix this program to to really build their ethanol uh, and and get that infrastructure going? I don't know. That's what they said they did. Or did but, they
1: say that to drive down the price of
3: corn? W- right. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I, I think a lot of times when China says something, you can almost immediately think the opposite. And what about wheat? Have they been buying wheat here of late? So wheat's the market right now that has the uh, the strongest uptrend going, and uh, wheat will probably be a benefactor of the trade deal at some point, but we do have other things going on. Uh, we've got a, a supply globally that is uh, getting smaller as time goes by. Uh, we've got a, a player in the wheat market globally, Pakistan, that is having a wheat crisis right now. Um, and so it's very important for them to have enough wheat. Their their diet there uh, consumes a lot of flour-based products. And so they recently had to come in and purchase wheat uh, when they, over the last several years, have made an effort to not only feed their own people, but become a wheat exporter. So they haven't done a very good job. They don't have a very good infrastructure internally to store wheat. So you've got a country that is caught short of wheat supplies right now. Uh, you've got australia that that is having concerns uh so we've got more than just the trade war story that is helping wheat uh and and uh, we found out on the january report that uh, our winter wheat plantings are the lowest in over a decade so that doesn't help the scenario either yeah lowest and since uh,
1: what 1909 uh, fewest seeded wheat acres i think since 1909 the thing that I wonder about, though, would would we see a significant increase in spring wheat acreage this year? The market would have to continue to climb, would it not, to pull some acres into spring wheat uh, in the northern part of the country this year? Especially since some of those fields are still sitting out there with corn in them.
3: <laughs> right, and that's going to be a, a big question is, uh, you know, what gets planted anyway in, yeah. in the far north because of the idea of how wet it is and, and will it continue to be wet enough to really uh, expect uh, a large amount of prevent plant in in the northern plains. But uh, to me, I I look at this uh, spring wheat chart, and it's at the upper constraints of the recent price levels that we've seen. Uh, I see the continuous wheat chart as having a possible head-and-shoulder bottom, and it could lead to significantly higher values. Uh, And if we see that type of move happen in the short term, uh, then I do think that we would see the idea that, yes, spring wheat acres, at least the intentions, could increase in the next several months.
1: If you take a look at uh, the talk about corn planted acreage this spring. It's a big number, isn't it? I mean, we'd have a lot of corn to work our way through, right, Brian?
3: We would, yes. uh, Assuming a good crop. I, I don't believe that soybean values have done their job to take acres back from corn. And we've seen the price that it costs to grow corn as far as inputs come down. And so when you look at the potential for growing 94 to 95 million acres of corn. And we know that come the May WASDE report, the USDA will be using a trend line yield, which is going to be somewhere in the ballpark of 177 to 178 bushels per acre. Um, And and one of the concerns is that the USDA back in October had those baseline projections that they released. And so they used 94.5 million acres. They used a, a 178 yield But their demand was also about 800 million bushels above the demand that we have plugged in for this current balance sheet. And carryout was still 2.75 billion bushels. So if we end up having a a larger-than-trend crop, or even if we just try to price that in on that amount of acres and that demand isn't there, We'll have potential conversations next August of a three billion bushel or higher carryout. Uh, now, I do personally believe that the disappearance on our old crop between January and June uh, will be larger than normal, uh, so that should help that scenario. But uh, we are focusing right now with our clients on working on profitability and uh, making sure that producers are aware of, of what four dollar or four hundred five corn means to their operation. We've uh, almost grown accustomed to negative.
1: Uh, bearish USDA reports, haven't we? I mean, is that setting us up perhaps uh, one of these days, one of these days when we get a report that could really, really be perceived as friendly? We're going into so many of these reports. We've had one after another it seems like, where the reports uh, have been disappointing to the producers.
3: So You can take that uh, and and then there's good with the bad, Uh, right? So I I would say the last bullish report the USDA gave us was the June WASDI report where they reduced the expectations of our yield by 10 bushels per acre, uh, which reduced our expected supply or our production by about 1.2 billion bushels, yet they only reduced the demand by about 400 million bushels. So that was a bullish report, but we also made highs uh, centered right around that report. Uh, ever since then, we really haven't had what I would say is a, you know, knock your socks off while wow, that number was friendly. But yet we've seen positive reactions in the market to negative reports. And I think this January report would be the last example of that, where the carryout came in higher than the trade had expected. Uh, although it, it, the carryout didn't increase, it did come down, but not enough to where the trade was was pricing in. And the market immediately went down on that number, but then came back swiftly. So... Uh, I think that shows resilience to the market and that uh, there are value uh, buyers in here, uh, for example, around 375 to 380 on the March contract that are here to support uh, corn prices where they lie. While it isn't
1: an official USDA report, the numbers that come out of the Ag Outlook Forum every year are very closely watched because USDA plugs in some assumptions there, do they not, Brian? And that's just a few weeks away.
3: They do. And, uh, you know, much like the the baseline numbers that uh, we were uh, ta- just talking about from October, um, they're not entirely accurate, but it is a little bit of a roadmap on uh, kind of a, a shot across the bow, if you will, of potentially what the usda is thinking and uh, those numbers will change when we get to the may wasdy report but uh, it, it is a number that the market will look at and it will react to it and it'll just be another little piece of the puzzle that the market digests back to south
1: america for just a moment early reports coming in i think they came in from the state of mato grosso showed the early soybean harvest, and I know this is <clears throat> very early in the game, but the early harvest was trailing the progress of a year ago. Are you going to watch very closely that progress of harvest down there? Maybe maybe more so than usual, just to see what happens with that uh, corn acreage in that second crop that is planted down there.
3: Correct, and, and it is so early in, in their harvest to... Uh, say hey we're really concerned about it right now but it is a story that could potentially develop and and you're right Max so what will happen is if that harvest remains delayed uh, that will affect the Safrina corn crop and the acres that are, are planted towards that crop and so we have seen very strong uh, export programs late in the year for US corn because of a concern about Brazil's corn crop uh, and I would also like to say that the the crop that the u.s. has been exporting aggressively has been soybeans over the last several months and it's no secret that the corn exports have been really really poor so uh, i do think that regardless of brazil's uh, crop we're going to see corn exports look a lot better as we get into the uh, the next several months and and getting into the uh... the second and third quarter of the of the marketing year uh... but if we have a problem with Brazil's corn, that will only help that story uh, even further. Brian, summarize the uh, counsel you're giving farmers this winter. Right now we are really focusing on using the app that we've developed to look at uh, producers' costs. Uh, what does it cost to grow a bushel of corn? What does it cost to grow a bushel of soybeans? Uh, in our app, we can uh, use this to test strategies to see what kind of revenue we would be locking in on a per acre basis. And we'd really want to focus on on the profit that's there, not the price. $4, dollars 4 dollars December corn does not mean the same thing to everybody. So uh, we want to think ahead uh traditionally over the last several years we've seen lows that were made in spring that have been as low as the low to mid 360s on december corn and we want to be in a position of of strength if we end up making lows down there we can think about hey should we be rolling out to july to capture carry uh should we be putting some money in in the account from our hedges than just sitting there with our fingers crossed hoping the market goes back up
1: agmarket.net right brian
3: that is correct, agmarket.net.
1: Brian Split, thank you, sir.
0: Good to see you. I talked earlier this week about the second annual sheep shearing school at Purdue University. And here is the best way to get more information on that. A website, indianasheep.com, indianasheep.com. The date of the school is March 7th. And it will be held for the entire day. The class is limited to uh, about 20 people. So uh, get on that website if you're interested in maybe a new career of shearing sheep or a career that you need some tuning up on. So March 7th is the date. Well, yesterday, Cattle on Feed report, no big surprises, pretty much in line with what traders were expecting And so probably not much impact when we open Trade Monday. That's our time for this morning. Thanks to you for joining us. Thanks to Bob Ferguson, our engineer, for doing his work. And we'll see you again next week. Join us on the Saturday Morning Show.
2: Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.